Habakkuk, chapter 1, and verse 1. The book of the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, and verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. A burden is that which is heavy to bear. Such is Habakkuk's message to the people. He has serious and weighty words of judgment to pronounce upon the nation of Judah. For wickedness is rife in the land. Whilst Habakkuk is the Lord's prophet with a special calling to preach, Every Christian today should, like Habakkuk, have a deep burden concerning the rebellion against God which he sees in the nation. This is a vital aspect of the believer's service to the Lord Jesus Christ. To pray and work that his society might see its sin and turn to God through the gospel. We read in verse 2 here, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. So Habakkuk is longing for God's intervention. We must not think that he is complaining that God has been dilatory. No man of God would pray like that. He knows that God's providence is perfect in all its outworkings. Yet Habakkuk is perplexed by the extended period in which the wicked appear to triumph. He has been praying long that the awful situation in the nation might change. And so he cries out here plaintively to the Lord. Wilt thou not hear? He knows that God does hear all his prayers. Yet he is troubled that the righteous continue to be oppressed and evil continues to go unchecked. He desires that the wicked, if they do not repent, might indeed know God's righteous condemnation. His prayer continues in verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Now, as always, God's word is grounded in real history. The prophet is writing between 608 and 605 B.C., during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And this reign was doing the nation much harm. We read of King Jehoiakim in 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 36. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So Habakkuk has to deal 
with a situation of ongoing, God-rejecting national government. Jehoiakim is carrying on in the same path as previous God-defying rulers. So the corruption in the land is starting at the top. For example, on one occasion when words written by Jeremiah were heard in the king's presence. Jeremiah was Habakkuk's contemporary. The king heard these words and it was so incensed by hearing the word of God that he cut up the scroll from which the words were being spoken and threw it onto the fire. And he ordered Jeremiah's arrest. Such was his hostility to the word of God. And this hostility ran deep throughout Judean society. People were also being oppressed in the land, contrary to all justice. And there was simply no fear of God. So rejection of the authority of God's word was at the heart of the national malaise and had all kinds of social repercussions. Verse 4, therefore the law is slapped and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. The nation was involved in the worship of false gods. And because faith in the one true God had been turned away from, there was now general corruption and lawlessness within society. And how all this grieves the heart of Habakkuk. We read in Jeremiah 22 of what Jeremiah had to pronounce against the wicked Jehoiakim. Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbour's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. And then verse 17. Thine eyes and thy heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. So we learn here that Jehoiakim used forced, unpaid labour to build a grand royal palace. He was an oppressive ruler, living out his whole life in defiance of God's laws. But this rebellion from the king actually characterised the whole of Judean society. There would be awful national consequences for all of this because God is not mocked so in verse 5 here we have God's response to Habakkuk's earnest pleadings with him about the wickedness of the people behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvellously for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe though it be told you 
Although the Lord has been very patient with the nation, the time for judgment was now imminent. It was going to come in the days of the people whom Habakkuk is addressing. God is bringing this judgment from among the heathen, we are told in this fifth verse, from among the Gentiles. And so he declares, I will use a heathen nation, namely Babylon, as my instrument to chastise the sinners in Judea. And you shall then see that I have not overlooked the evil that is rife among you. So we learn here that God is closely watching what the nations are doing. He is watching what our nation is doing right now. Judgment will inevitably come. We are already having foretastes of it in inflation, in enormous national debt, in industrial unrest and very costly involvement in war. The people here are being told by Habakkuk that the national judgment will be so severe that no one will believe it possible until they actually see it for themselves. It will be more horrible than they could ever imagine. Now, in Acts 13 and verse 41, the Apostle Paul refers specifically to this verse 5, showing, of course, that the word of God has a timeless application in any generation. So let us uh, look at Acts 13, verse 40. Uh, Paul declares, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken in the prophets. And he's referring back to Habakkuk 1. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Now Paul was preaching in the synagogue uh, in Antioch of Pisidia. And he was particularly grieved by the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ by his own countrymen. And so Paul announces that there is coming a national judgment upon Israel within the lifetime of those to whom Paul speaks. And this judgment will be so horrific that no one could imagine it to be possible. Habakkuk continues in verse 6, referring to the immediate situation of his own day. Here in Habakkuk 1 verse 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. This is God's word to the nation through Habakkuk. That bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So God is going to send the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to destroy the nation and take the people into captivity. We thus see that although the Lord is long-suffering 
with sinful man. They cannot presume upon his forbearance forever. A corporate judgment may well come down at any time upon a wicked nation. And it can, of course, come down at any time upon wicked, God-defying individuals. It can come down in this life as well as on the great last day. The Christian, therefore, should not be afraid to speak out about the reality of the judgment of God, both on an individual level, but also on a national level. And if our society is characterised by particular and prevailing fashionable sins, as indeed it is, then these particular sins have to be named and have to be vigorously confronted. The rebellion against God and his moral law is now deeply ingrained in modern Britain. People are happy publicly to mock and discredit the Christian faith and the teachings of the Bible. We experience this week by week in our open-air work. Interestingly, however, there would never be the same willingness to publicly denounce the religion of Mohammed. Why is this? The reason is secular society's obsession with embracing diversity. It is quite acceptable to despise Britain's history, culture and identity, greatly influenced as it has been by biblical Christianity. But in the case of all other faiths and cultures, there must be a fawning deference. So we see great inconsistency here. What a sad ignorance there is of how God has wonderfully blessed this nation in times past through the Christian gospel. And how our young people need to understand this. How many school children know about Latimer and Ridley, know about Richard Baxter and John Bunyan, know about George Whitfield and John Wesley? How many school children know about the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon or the great Bishop J.C. Ryle. They do not know. They are ignorant and they need to know. The people of Israel were constantly being exhorted to remember their history, the great things that God had done for the nation in times past. Yes, of course, our national history is not perfect. There are many flaws and blemishes, but there's also much that we can praise God for. So as we consider the state of our nation today, we must understand that what is taking place is a wholesale rejection of the one true faith of Jesus Christ. 
And because that is happening, we are witnessing the seeds of dangerous social collapse. God's commandments are frequently cast aside as the relics of a less enlightened era. Our society, for example, thinks that it can ignore the Sabbath day, the day of resurrection, without any negative consequences. But the fourth commandment has never been rescinded. And it is given to man for man's blessing. Our society thinks that it can promote LGBT lifestyles and destroy human life in the womb on the grounds that times have moved on and people's understandings have progressed. We are even telling school children that they can change their gender. That is wicked. God in his infinite wisdom has fixed a person's gender for all time. We've got to tell the world that because if Bible-believing Christians do not do it, no one else will. Now, just as Habakkuk was greatly distressed by what he saw in his nation, so we as Christians today should be distressed by what is happening in our nation. It is, in fact, one of the marks of God's true people that they are grieved at the rejection of God by those around them. It is a mark of the new birth. No true Christian can rest content whilst their neighbours are rushing themselves into hell and bringing the nation under God's judgment at the same time. Now, to grieve at the world's wickedness in no way conflicts with our own personal joy and peace in believing. There are some who argue that to bemoan and denounce wickedness is all very negative and will not endear non-believers to the faith. But we see from the example of Habakkuk that we cannot, as Christians, shirk the task of denunciation. It is worth remembering how John the Baptist prepared for the coming of our Lord by calling on sinners to repent and by warning them of the wrath to come. So to expose the world's Sin and unbelief is, in fact, entirely positive. It provides a necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. Now, personally, as believers, the Holy Spirit sustains and exalts us as we walk through this evil world. But it is also true that before we get to heaven, we are called to fight a good fight, as well as to rejoice. And it is only through much tribulation that we enter into the heavenly kingdom. Now, whilst we maintain a distinct separation from the world's attitudes... The Christian should never be an aloof pietist 
sitting in a quiet corner and saying, the world is the world, let them get on with it, at least I am saved. No, we are called to minister to a lost world. Indeed, we should be weeping over the unbelief of those around us. As the hymn writer puts it, Christians seek not yet repose, cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes, watch and pray. So the believer is called to be a weeper and a watcher. To watch means to stay alert for the business of prayer. The born-again believer must earnestly pray for the unbelieving world around him as he weeps over the plight of the lost. Now, the supreme example of this concern for the spiritually lost is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He, for example, grieved and wept over Jerusalem, over his own countrymen. He knew that he was soon going to glory. He knew that nothing could separate him from his father's presence. But that still did not stop him from weeping over what he saw. And before he would return to his heavenly throne, he knew that he had to engage in costly service here on the earth. He first had to complete his father's will before he entered into his father's glory. He had to watch, he had to work, and he had to weep before the glory came. And so must it be with us. Lot is another example of a man of God who wept. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 7, we are told that God delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in Sodom and Gomorrah, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So in the face of gross ungodliness and wickedness, Lot did not say, never mind, I am not like them. He was not like the proud Pharisee who said, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Lot was rather grieved to the core of his being. He vexed his soul daily. He had a deep burden for the God-rejecting foolishness of his society. Yes, he of course knew that God is still on the throne and in control of all things. But his regenerate heart made him hate the prevailing sin of his generation. Applying this to our own day, it will be precisely those 
who watch and weep over their nation, who are the ones who are resolved to work vigorously in proclaiming the gospel. Because it is those who feel the desperate seriousness of the environment all around them who will go out there and do something about it. And as we've already heard today, how we can learn from Jeremiah. He likewise vexed his soul and grieved over his nation. He declares in Jeremiah 13 and verse 17, My soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eye shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Jeremiah is actually called the weeping prophet. He would have always had a deep personal joy because of his own salvation. But that did not stop him grieving over his nation. He wept because he knew judgment was coming. Far from being negative, this weeping was actually a mark of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. For the Spirit causes the true believer to be disgusted at sin and to have a burden, a compassionate burden for the lost. Jeremiah's weeping was an intrinsic part of his spirituality. His attitude of concern for his nation was true patriotism. It is as believers weep over their country that they then earnestly seek God's face and work to rectify the situation. Jeremiah grieved and he also preached the judgment of God. And because of this, he was not a popular preacher. If he were a preacher today, he would not have had a large following. And he would never be given a platform by the politicians or the media. The author of Psalm 119 furnishes another instance of one who wept over the prevailing wickedness and unbelief of his society. He declares in that psalm, in verse 53, horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. And then in verse 136, he declares, mine eyes run down with rivers of water because they keep not thy law. Verse 158, I beheld the treacherous dealers and was grieved because they kept not thy word. And so from what the psalmist writes there, we again learn how we must be deeply grieved at the godlessness around us, pouring out our hearts to the Lord in prayer. We must have a burden for our Christ-rejecting nation. A burden 
such as the Apostle Paul had for his nation. Romans 9 too. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was distressed that so many of his fellow Jews were without Christ. And so the priority in Paul's Christian walk was not the pursuit of personal elation. It was to fight the fight of good faith and to confront a wicked world. In Acts 17 verse 16 we read of Paul in the sophisticated, multi-faith, intellectual capital of the world, Athens. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. How distressed was the Apostle Paul in seeing all these Athenian temples devoted to the worship of false gods, demon-inspired false gods. Now in the book of Ezekiel, we learn that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, especially marks out as his own people those who weep and grieve over sin and unbelief. Ezekiel in chapter 9, is receiving a vision of the pre-incarnate Son of God, who is clothed in linen and who has a writer's inkhorn by his side, ready to engage in a special act of marking out. So we read this in Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. The Lord said unto him, that is, to the Son of God. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So the eternal Son of God specifically identifies and marks out those who are sighing and crying over national sin. Now we, of course, have a burden that all the world might come to Christ. But that does not preclude a particular burden for the place where the providence of God has placed us. We must not be afraid of announcing the inevitability of national judgment. Just as Habakkuk had the task of announcing the coming of the Babylonians to destroy the nation. We must shout from the housetops the need for repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only solution. Now yes, we possess a personal joy at our own salvation. But before we get to heaven we are called to minister to a lost world. We cannot get to heaven without first doing that. A world 
under the wrath of God. We should be sighing and crying at the defiance of God around us. And we should be angry at false teaching within the churches because it's leading men astray. It's encouraging them to go to hell. And now we've reached the stage where churches are even prepared to condone outright sin. We must confront the man-pleasing tragedy of churches jumping on the climate change bandwagon instead of calling sinners to repentance. There is nothing virtuous about remaining calm and placid when God's word is being compromised or simply ignored. Habakkuk grieved over his nation and prayed with all of his heart. Because he loved his countrymen, he had a duty to warn them about the wrath of God upon their sin. Now, as with Judah in Habakkuk's day, most people in our contemporary society remain recklessly indifferent to the fact of coming judgment. They are more concerned about offending the planet by means of climate change than offending the God who controls the climate. Our task is to grieve over this darkened, lost world and to confront the sin and unbelief all around us. We must be watchers, earnestly praying that God will work in power. We must be weepers, grieving over wickedness and the plight of the lost. And we must be workers, doing all that we can to preach the gospel and bring sinners to the Saviour. When sinners are converted to Christ, even in relatively small numbers, it begins to have a purifying effect upon the rest of society. You only need a small amount of thought to purify a lot larger volume of meat. And so, if we preach conversion, the gospel, and sinners are converted, society will begin to change. And this is why gospel preaching is the only ultimate answer. We shall only get a better nation if we first change men's rotten, corrupted hearts. And the only way that hearts can be changed is to preach the glorious life-transforming message of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes new all who come to him with a broken and a contrite heart. So what is the solution to our nation's appalling spiritual malaise? It is to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul And to declare with him, I determine 
not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Amen.